Here's a poem for you by Miego Gavia. Roses are red. Doritos are savory. The U.S. prison system is legalized slavery. I'm getting that on a t-shirt, by the way. Hey, everybody. My name's Mediva. I'm an attorney who fights for social justice. You're listening to the fourth episode of my podcast, Bard and Bougie. Bard and Bougie is your source for quick weekly breakdowns about law and politics in a way that non-law people can understand and centers marginalized people. Let's get started. If you think back to your elementary school days, you probably learned that slavery is illegal and ended a long time ago. That's what I heard anyway. But today, I want to explain how that's not quite true. The 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution does say slavery and involuntary servitude are illegal in this country, but it also contains a very important word, and that word is accept. According to the Constitution, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist in the United States, except as a punishment for a crime where the person has been convicted. By making this carve-out for prison labor, the 13th Amendment outlawed slavery in one way, but preserved its legality in another way. Incarcerated people and their allies are calling for an end to this form of slavery. In prisons right now across the country, people are rebelling against inhumane conditions and policies, including prison slavery, by staging sit-ins and work strikes, boycotting commissaries, engaging in hunger strikes, and more. This episode, I want to talk about some of the legal and political forces that have allowed prison labor to exist, and what the consequences and conditions are. Then we can move to the ongoing prison strike, and how allies can support this prisoner-led movement for human rights. Alright, so, let's talk about the slavery loophole that is, the 13th Amendment. As y'all know, I hope, slavery caused the country to shatter like Humpty Dumpty. Like, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, because he wanted to own black people. After the Civil War, the government needed to put Humpty back together again. One of the ways in which the government tried to do that was by changing the Constitution. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments collectively known as the Reconstruction Amendments, were supposed to actually tell us about the legal status and rights of formerly enslaved people. Weirdly enough, the first time the Supreme Court interpreted these amendments had nothing to do with the enslavement of Black people. This group of three cases, known as the Slaughterhouse Cases, was about a Louisiana law that said people have to stop keeping and killing their livestock any old place. Louisiana said, Slaughter your animals in the slaughterhouse or pay a fine, and also the slaughterhouse can charge its own fees. Some butchers were upset about this and said, hey now, wait just a minute, you're creating a monopoly and giving the slaughterhouse exclusive rights. Forcing me to use them sounds like involuntary servitude in violation of the 13th Amendment. The Supreme Court responds to this by being like, If you think having to go to a designated place to kill your chickens sounds like slavery, boy do I have some news for you about what we did to black people in this country. You should know this since we only just kind of stopped like five minutes ago. The court said it was obvious. It actually used the word obvious 
that the 13th Amendment is about forbidding the enslavement of Black people or keeping Black people in slave-like conditions. The court's like, to be clear, it would also be illegal to enslave Chinese people or Mexican people, but this law was obviously about the race-based enslavement of Black people, and your little slaughterhouse concern does not really compare. Now, when incarcerated people try to challenge their work conditions under the 13th Amendment, federal courts are like, no dude, remember Slaughterhouse? Slaughterhouse told us the 13th Amendment is about things comparable to the enslavement of black people, and this ain't that. You just shouldn't have gotten yourself arrested, because the 13th Amendment doesn't apply when it's punishment for a crime. I feel like this is such a maximum America move, like, of course, the one time the government says they'll remedy the harm of slavery, they actually just continue to hurt Black people for generations. And, you know, for good measure, the slavery loophole hurts other people of color and low-income people, too. The post-Civil War American South pounced on the criminal conviction exception and started passing laws making it super easy to arrest and convict Black people. There were laws that made it illegal for black people to change jobs unless they had permission from their last employer, basically meaning they had to stay on the plantation as a slave, or get arrested and convicted and sent to a plantation as a slave. There were laws criminalizing vague things like mischief or insulting gestures that were enforced aggressively against black people, which basically got you new slaves. Black people would also get arrested arbitrarily, have to go to court, which can be super expensive, and then would be sold to pay off the court debt, which, again, sounds like slavery. Through convict leasing systems, farmers or businesses could buy the labor of primarily black persons, having them do agricultural work and other work, and giving businesses very high profits. You can say it with me now, slavery. Convict leasing formally ended in 1928, but it has since been replaced by mass incarceration. These perverse incentives to lock people up for profit still exist. Unlike workers outside of prison, incarcerated people aren't free to leave their jobs if they want to. They don't have access to workers' compensation or disability if they get injured. They can't organize a union, and they don't need to be paid minimum wage, if they're paid at all. The average pay for workers in state prisons works out to 20 cents an hour. 20 cents, two dimes. What can you get for two dimes? A clue? I don't know. This is obviously messed up, but it's extra trifling when you consider that prison is expensive. I know some people think, you know, in prison there's no rent, no buying groceries, you're clothed, sheltered, and fed for free. Side note, they shouldn't pay you to eat prison food. It's nasty. Like, companies were caught serving food with maggots in it nasty. Living, even for free, is different from living with basic human dignity. And they're not even really living for free. Phone calls to your family aren't free. Collect calls from jails and prisons can cost 25 cents a minute. That's more per minute than they make per hour. In many state prisons, tampons and pads aren't free and they only recently became free in federal prisons. Imagine working for weeks in potentially dangerous jobs and being unable to afford freedom from bleeding through your pants like it's seventh grade all over again. Some incarcerated women who couldn't afford more menstrual products 
resorted to using socks, washcloths, or tampons they made from cotton swabs held together by floss. It's not sanitary. And it's not necessary. Hundreds of thousands of incarcerated people have jobs both inside and outside of prisons. These jobs range from kitchen labor, cleaning, and farming, to GED tutoring, and even firefighting. Around a third of California's forest firefighters are people incarcerated in state prisons. California's been suffering from record-breaking wildfires this summer, and these fires are being fought by over 2,000 prisoners, including 58 youth offenders. These men, women, and children are risking their lives for $1 per hour, plus $2 per day, with the possibility of 72-hour shifts. Once they get out of prison, assuming they get out of prison, many of these people are prevented from getting jobs as firefighters because of their felony records, even though they were just in jail fighting fires. Make it make sense. I guess it was cool when they were locked up, since California officials say the inmate firefighting program saves the state $90 million to $100 million a year. Only you can prevent forest firefighters from getting livable wages. Deirdre Wilson is a formerly incarcerated person who served as a volunteer firefighter in prison. She described the experience as a cruel joke. She continued to say, You're not really volunteering. The system evolved out of a system of slavery where we commodify human bodies and function off their labor. The key point I'm trying to make here and the point incarcerated people have urged us not to ignore, is that prison labor is now, and has always been, just a continuation of slavery. By now, some of y'all are probably thinking, all right, cool history lesson, Mediba, but what does this mean for the people in prison right now? Don't worry, I got you. Let's turn to the movement currently happening in our nation's prisons. Last week, Incarcerated people across the country went on strike. This national strike began on August 21st and will continue until September 9th, ending on the anniversary of the Attica prison uprising in New York. The prisoners released a list of 10 demands that included improving the conditions of prisons immediately, ending prison slavery, restoring the voting rights of all confined citizens, and rehabilitation services for all prisoners including violent offenders. The imprisoned workers are already winning some concessions. For example, the Texas prison system just voted to increase the limit on phone calls from 20 minutes to 30 minutes and reduce the cost from 26 cents a minute to 6 cents a minute so people in prison can more easily talk to their families. Whether you're incarcerated or not, the strike is the most powerful weapon workers have. Prisons can't function without the work of prisoners. Bureau of Justice statistics show that about 700,000 imprisoned people have jobs helping to run the prison. The strike, then, poses a problem for the jailers. Strikes are also problems for companies that have used prison labor, like Whole Foods, Walmart, and Victoria's Secret. Yeah, prison panties isn't just a plotline on Orange is the New Black. Turns out the secret Victoria was keeping is mass incarceration. Prison strikes are also a threat to the governments that use prison labor. 
At least seven states have unpaid or barely paid incarcerated people working in governor's mansions and capitol buildings, which doesn't really feel different to me than slaves in Mass's big house. I think it's also important for us on the outside to recognize what a bold and honestly dangerous move this is for people in prisons. Their entire lives are controlled by the state, and as a result of the strike, they can face serious retribution. We've already seen examples, including threats of violence and punitive transfers into solitary confinement. Some women currently detained by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, that agency I spoke about in episode one, wanted to participate in a hunger strike in solidarity with the national prison strike. The mothers were told that if they did, they would be moved to a different facility away from their children. Honestly, I'm disgusted that the government is continuing to illegally use brown children as bargaining chips. And real talk, this right here is why I say the only good ice is in my gin and tonic. This is also a good moment to point out how all of our struggles are interconnected. This is a criminal justice issue and a workers' rights issue, connected to an immigrant justice issue, which is also a reproductive justice issue. And all of these are racial justice issues. Most women in jails are women of color, and nearly 80% of women in jails are mothers. Also, women are the fastest growing segment of the prison population. We have to consider how having multiple identities, like being incarcerated, and a woman, and a woman of color, and a mom, shapes the kind of oppression we face. And whatever we do to help people who are all of those things helps even those who are just one of them. By helping her, we also help ourselves. And, you know, Spike Lee told us to do the right thing. So, how do I help, Madiba? Well, I'm glad you asked. Groups like Jailhouse Lawyers Speak have identified a number of ways for us to best support their efforts. One way for us to support the strike is by making people pay attention. Spread the word, hold rallies, contact your elected officials. We can also contact people in prison who are isolated and facing reprisals. They need our love and support. You can also donate to their fundraiser, which distributes donations between prisoner organizing and support groups. The law is not protecting incarcerated people, but you can. Also, I want to note that prison slavery is just one of many issues incarcerated people are fighting against. To learn more, you can check out prisonstrike.com and incarceratedworkers.org, or follow folks like at Prison Culture on Twitter. If you want to do a deep dive into mass incarceration and prison labor, I would also recommend Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, and Ava DuVernay's documentary on Netflix called 13th. Thanks so much for tuning in. I love getting to talk about these issues with you all. If you like what you're hearing, please remember to subscribe and share. You can also give me feedback by rating episodes and leaving comments. I'm super interested in what y'all have to say. Bard and Bougie is available on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Podbean. Transcripts and other updates are on the Bard and Bougie Facebook page. I also have Bard and Bougie swag now, which I am so hype about. You can get official Bard and Bougie shirts, mugs, tote bags, and stickers 
on teespring.com slash bard and bougie merch. There are dashes in between the words bard and bougie merch, by the way. I'll post a link online. You should get some swag because they look so good and also because I need to fund my coffee habit so I can keep making episodes. (laughs) For real, thank you, friends. And tune in for a new episode next week. Thank you.